Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. They tried to colonize us, tried to genocide us, yet we're still here with the tongue unbroken. Gnachi shea hachet isa achi, stakat yuhan, wa e akwa, ye awa achtua saku hai wuzi. One canines away a day you had to clear at Gia, Yahayu Katungi teen, a dot you took thank you all for listening. Uh, we have different ways of talking in our language, and we have a an Alaska Native hospital in Anchorage, Alaska. In there, when you walk in, there's a poster that you'll see that says how to say hello in Alaska Native languages. And when you look at the one under Shingit, it says Wa'e'akwe, which uh, I don't, I'm not going to say it doesn't mean hello, but it literally means, is that you? And uh, it's a way to greet people that you know really well. And so I think it's fun. I think it's funny. Uh, every time I would walk by that poster, I'd think, well, that's kind of, there's going to be a bunch of people walk around saying, is that you? Is that you? And there are sometimes some smart aleck responses to that. You can say, I'm still me. Or you could say, I don't know. Or you could say, no. Uh, so this is how we talk when we know each other pretty well. And I was just thinking, as we start, I like to do different greetings to just start the show and have our language be at the forefront, the Shingit language. Uh, and so we have some folks with us today from a group called 7,000 Languages. Full disclosure, I'm on the board, and I think they're doing wonderful things. I was voluntold by my teacher and mentor, uh, Ko'u Kumanui, 
Pila Wilson, who said, hey, you should go do this thing with these great people. So I said, you bet. And um, we're going to talk with them today about what they're doing, what kind of projects they're working on, data sovereignty, how to be a good ally, how technology can assist with indigenous language revitalization and revitalization of languages around the world. So I think we'll start, uh, tell the folks who you are, and then we'll talk about 7,000 languages and kind of go from there. All right. Thank you so much. Hello, aloha, haminat. My name is Stephanie Witkowski. I'm the executive director of 7,000 Languages. I'm really happy to be here with you today. I'm coming to you from Southern California or the stolen lands of the Tongva and the Hachiman people. I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that and, of course, the, the tireless work that they're doing to revitalize their culture and their language. Um, I worked for a, a tribal nation down here in Southern California, and they said, not to say hello, but not means how are you? And so um, we were doing research on the language, and we found some research that suggested that this, this tribal nation, they were known as the, like, how are yous? They were always going around asking everybody, how are you? How are you? How are you? But, um, but it always, it, it means more like, let's take a pause and let's really check in with each other. And let's truly ask, how are you today? Let's see each other and be here in this moment. And I'm uh, pleased to be with you. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to get the pronunciation right because Klingit is um, a bit different from the languages I know. I'm Bill Rivers. I'm the president of the board of 7,000 languages. Um, and I come at this from a place where I have this incredible, um, ineffable joy of being multilingual and of being part of multiple cultures where um, Quebecois French was uh, part of my father's family. I was born in Germany. Um, Irish was a part of my mother's family. Um, where, and and, but also a place where, in looking at languages in the United States and uh, coming to you from the unceded lands of the Piscataquis and Tuscarora nations in uh, Greater Washington D.C., where we, you know, America is the been characterized by a, a professor at UC, um, I think Riverside, Ruben Rimbaud, as the graveyard of languages, where where we have done as a culture our very best to extinguish um, the languages of five more than five hundred and seventy four Native American, Alaska Native, and Hawaiian nations um, of all of the immigrant languages that come to us, and yet they they persist, and in, and yet. Um, there are folks like Kune who are out there, um, you know, doing the hard work of reviving, revitalizing, reclaiming language. And how can we, as 7,000 languages, support that? How can we come in and, you know, facilitate whatever, you know, facilitate, I'm sorry to use, that's like a, a you know, a, a BS term from the business world. How can we help, right? And what can we do? to to make it possible 
to transmit languages to another generation, to make it possible to grow a community of native speakers. Now, I come from, on my mother's side, a very fierce and proud um, uh, um, Hualan uh, tradition, that the language of, of Southwest Ireland, far Southwest of Ireland, which was nearly exterminated by the British along with the people, um, where uh, my great-grandfather, my grandfather were teachers, were language teachers, where where we look at um, the way that our language describes the natural world, where my ancestors went out in seal-skinned boats to fish the waters of the North Atlantic, and where all of the terminology of weather and sea conditions is incredibly detailed because that was their life. And, you know, they had to understand that and they had to be able to pull that living from the waters. And that's not that long ago. That's a hundred years ago. And we're in Alaska right now. There's not enough salmon, right? Um, especially following this horrific storm. So there's, there's a connection between the language you have and your ancestors and the way you, you live your life that is too easily obscured, right, by a whole bunch of other stuff. Now, I had a cup of coffee after lunch because it's, you know, 5.30 here on the East Coast. I apologize. I'll try not to dominate the conversation, but I'm deeply passionate about empowering communities to do whatever they need to do, to do whatever they want to do with their language. And I'll stop now. And uh, well, there's a, a bunch of stuff that you folks brought up and, and thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your time with us and for talking with folks just about what they can do. Like, a lot of what we're trying to do here is just sort of bring these conversations to folks who might not know about them and then bring tools and options to folks who are out there doing this type of work. It's usually pretty small groups of people doing everything they can, trying to figure out like this uphill climb and look at genocide right in the face and just saying, uh, no, thank you. We'll just sort of exist if that's okay. Uh, and so as we look at this, like 7,000 languages, and, and so when I think about that name, I think, okay, there's about that many languages now, and our goal is to say there should be about that many languages always, which is a difficult thing to do, because I would say pretty confidently that with the, the way things are going, there's probably more languages now than we can accurately document, but we're also losing so many languages right now that we'll never actually know how many there are. And if things continue how they're going, there will never be this many again. And you can parallel this with biological diversity. There's, there's species that are going extinct faster than they can be recorded. And so you're also looking at this similar link where there will never be as many species of different things as there are right now. And so as we look at what this could do in terms of removing diversity is I think you're looking at a downward spiral. And, and so if you go, try to go from 7,000 human languages to say 50, 
I think the amount of information you're going to lose and the amount of ability to survive that you're going to lose is irreplaceable. So how did it start? Uh, what was the intention? Who was behind it? Spill, spill, spill the coffee. Sure. So um, this question of the the inextricable linkage between um, local knowledge of the the biosphere, your local, you know, ecology, and the the language itself and the culture is actually um, deeply embedded in almost every human language. Now there are big global languages, right? You know, English, Putonghua, um, Mandarin Chinese, Fusa, so standard Arabic, which you know we could talk about that. That's another subject. Um, Right, because there's so many dialects of Arabic, Spanish, etc. The top ten languages, which account for roughly eighty percent of the world's um, population, where a lot of that knowledge is lost. But I was talking about my um, my Irish forebears, and I have relatives in the far west of Ireland who still know all of these very, you know, very nuanced descriptions of the rain and the weather and the sea. And seaweed, which is used for, you know, seaweed, which is used for all sorts of different purposes in the culture, you know, food and food processing and, you know, other, other things where, you know, that's still, that's still there, even though they live modern, you know, post industrial lives with internet and live professional lives yet that still persists. And it persists now. And when I talk to my, you know, colleagues like Unamin Kavana, who's, you know, a generation younger than me. And, and then I watch all of these, these young, you know, young Walagar, these young Irish speakers, you know, preserving that and pushing it forward. That occurs in thousands of contexts around the world. And when, when you know, there's an academic movement to think about the, there's an academic movement that looks at the linkage between linguistic diversity and the knowledge of the living world. Um, it is relatively recent within roughly the last 10 years, but that's always been there. And within that, within that, there are enormous affordances for everybody else, not just for those, those folks living in those contexts. And there's, and when no, when that knowledge goes away, when the language dies, there's an, the, the, the loss is incalculable. We can revive a language from nothing, right? There are, you know, um, Hebrew, Cornish in Southwest England, um, um, Mashantucket, uh, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the Wapanoag folks in Mashpee, Massachusetts. But nevertheless, when you lose that knowledge, it's still in, this ineffable, this enormous loss. And the the there's a kind of market driven point of view this as well, you know, if it were important. But that that just that leads all of the frankly, you know, imperialist history behind the growth of certain languages because certain peoples had certain afford you know, certain nations had certain affordances or made you know, just historical luck was on their side or whatever. And the loss of all of this knowledge and all of this, um, all of these ways of life that could inform what 
you know, with with climate change being the the issue, right? That that's you know that's the fundamental issue for survival. Look, like you know what happened with the storm in Alaska, or what's happened with Shishmaref, and villages on the Arctic coast sinking into the sea. What's happening with you know Storm Fiona running up the East Coast and wiping out villages in Canada? Um, if we can't understand the world around us, if we can't address the world, that's that's one pro- that you know that's sort of existential force. And then I I step back and say, well, as as Clinet knows very well, we have really good data now in the United States about um, kids who come to school with another language, and if they are allowed to continue to develop that language their lives are better, right? But these are all, so, so we can say, okay, there's the, there's the, the value to humanity and the community and the country of, of linguistic diversity and the, the preservation and transmission and reclamation of languages. That's one piece. We can say, okay, well, there's this value to the individual. I'm going to get a better grades and, um, get into a better college and graduate with a higher GPA, get a better job. And oh, by the way, I'll have better uh, mental health outcomes and better um, physical health outcomes as I age if I am bilingual. But then there's the, the, the thing that I started off saying, there's this just fundamental part of me. I've always been bilingual. I don't know what it's like to be monolingual, right? I don't know how a monolingual brain works. And to me, it's it's just immediately and totally and entirely evident that you know it's better. You're better off being bilingual. Anyway, that that's me and who I am. I'm sorry to talk so long. <laughs> okay, know. let's get us back, Stephanie. If I if I saw you walking down the street with this amazing tote bag that said seven thousand languages on it, and I didn't know you, and I said, whoa. What's that? What's that about? Where did it start? Tell me about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Both brought up, brought up some great points. And what, what came to mind and what you said as well, Hune, was this idea of, you know, we think there's about 7,000 languages in the world. And you're absolutely right. We don't know. We don't know. And we don't know what languages are, are being lost. Um, we don't know the status of every language. We know that right now um, more languages are being lost than ever before. But we also know that right now there is more technology than ever before. There are more revitalization reclamation efforts than ever before. And we know that there are more resources and tools being made available than ever before. And I think that leads perfectly into the origin story of 7,000 languages. Um, so 7,000 languages, uh, we're not for profit organization, right? We have two incredibly intelligent board members. <laughs> we have multiple language, incredibly intelligent board members, but two that I'm speaking to right now. Um, so, you know, we are driven by obviously very passionate board of directors, uh, to run our organization and our mission is to empower communities around the world, really, who are, um, engaged in teaching, learning and sustaining their languages. 
And we do that through so many different ways. But I would say the core of what 7,000 Languages does is we provide technology tools, in particular, online language learning materials. And so we have to, um, we have to also take a step back and talk a little bit about how 7,000 Languages came to be to talk a bit about our mission and, and what we are able to provide for communities so 7,000 Languages, Bill knows much better than I, um, but 7,000 Languages began um, from, I think, just a really brilliant idea of the CEO of Transparent Language. His name was Michael Quinlan, and I think he had this idea that we, we sort of just touched on. There is incredible technology existing right now, right? Technology like Transparent Language, like Rosetta Stone, like Duolingo. These language technologies are available for people to learn languages, learn languages no matter where they are in the world, no matter if they have a connection, a personal connection to a native speaker or not, they can still learn language. There's speech recognition technology. We obviously have incredible abilities to record. Um, to provide learners with um, solid language learning methodologies. So why isn't this technology available to all languages? How come it's only available to these top 5% of the world's languages? If that, the technology is there. Why aren't we sharing this? Why aren't we spreading this? It costs, it doesn't cost money. You know, the technology has been developed. It doesn't cost extra money to ensure that these communities that are reclaiming, revitalizing, preserving their language have the ability to use these tools. And that's exactly what 7,000 Languages does. We bridge that gap. So we work, we, you know, we're really grateful to have Transparent Language in their donation of their software tool. Um, it's a really fantastic, robust language learning technology tool. There are over 40 different activities. Um, it's amazing, right? You're really, you're able to record an elder and you're able to use that elder, use their stories and their voice and their knowledge to teach future generations to come. So that's, that's the core of our mission. Now, that being said, I think Bill and Hune, you know that once you start with the language learning, it doesn't, it's not just language, right? It's about connection to land. It's about curriculum development. It's about oral histories and traditions and traditional knowledge. And so we find that at 7,000 Languages, a lot of the other support we've started to provide is around that as well. We provide um, a lot of curriculum development support and we provide, we hope that we provide new ways in which technology can be leveraged to truly capture the traditional knowledge and the way that communities want to engage with their language. I firmly believe that the technology can and should adapt to fit the needs of language and not the other way around. And it happens far too often the other way around. Like, you know, here's a list of uh, phrases on how to get to the airport. Will that work for you? And it's like, no, not really. You know, thanks for the template. But that's not at all what we want to be sharing and passing down to our children and our children's children. And so at 7,000 Languages, we are really at the forefront of like, okay, well, what can the technology do? Let's bend it. Let's break it if we have to. Um, 
because it can fit these communities. Sheesh. Uh, we're going to take a short break here, folks. But before we head to break, uh, I just want to talk about something real quick and then we'll come back and we'll we'll talk about what's going on, current projects and current goals. And then we're also going to get to some more of this conversation about data sovereignty, because if you're going to bring in external groups, you need to make sure that there's agreements in terms of what is everybody doing and what do folks own and who who gets to say what happens with what and and so as we've seen a lot of different languages that end up also exploited or people take things from them and close the door and we want to make sure that that's not happening to anybody but before we go to break I'll share a real quick uh narrative uh so I've I've raised uh our three children it with Tlingit as one of their first languages so they've been bilingual uh, one of our elders refers to them as our ESL babies, and he does it lovingly. He says, this is exactly what we need as children who are growing up in our language. And it was interesting because there's not a whole lot of kids who, who can speak, and there's more now, and we're gaining, and we're gaining children who can speak. But at one point, uh, I was talking with my oldest, and I told her uh, in Shingit, uh, go tell your brother and sister we're going to the store. And then uh, her friends, she was playing with some friends, and they were pretty new friends because we we're uh, spending the summer in the community of Sitka, Shitka. And one of her friends turned and said, what language is he speaking? Or, no, she turned to me and she said, what language are you speaking? So I turned to my daughter and I said, I said, tell her what language it is. And so she turned to her and shrugged her shoulders and said, human language? And so it was so neat to see her perspective on that. And um, so there's these multiple components we'll be talking about here, which is second language learning and then making new birth speakers again. So we'll be right back. What's happening, baby? This colonization shit got you down. You got to get on this decolonization groove. Yeah. It's time for language revitalization all across North America. The land of the language coming back into the hands of future generations where it all belongs. Rise up and have your voices be heard. Defeat all the colonial forces that try to hold you down. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating 
Melon Serum. This next-generation serum has the power of Melon Leaf stem cell technology. It's Melon Leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Uh, we're so happy you came back. Uh, this is a podcast, so it's not a visual element. But if if it was, you would see we've really dressed up for this conversation. So we're very thankful to be here. We're very thankful that you folks are listening to uh, what we're talking about and what we're sharing. So I think we'll we'll dive back into seven thousand languages. And then we're going to get to these larger conversations about the the operational philosophies and the ideologies that go into bringing technology to languages. But for now, um, what's going on? What's the current projects? What are the goals? What is 7,000 Languages doing? We've got a lot going on, which is really exciting. We've got a lot going on, working with a lot of communities, and we're finding new ways to serve even more communities. That's that's our big goal as we move forward, right? I mean, this, the name 7,000 languages, right? Like it's it's an overwhelming amount of work that has to be done. And and there's there's plenty of people who are engaged in doing this work. But, um, you know, we really know, and I think I always go back to the word empowering as well. We know that it's critical to work with communities, work in close, close partnerships to not just provide language learning courses, to not just say, hey, go ahead, give us your data. We're going to like do some stuff over here with the software and then we're going to give it back to you. Like, yeah, good for us. Thanks. But really what we want to do is we want to provide the know-how because this I'm not that technologically savvy. This isn't that hard. It's possible for all communities to create their own online language learning materials. And we want to create that. We want to create those opportunities to really share the tools, to teach how to build the tools, not just, here you go, we made this course for you. 
um, come back, come back with more data if you need us again, right? And create this this sort of like uh, cycle. But um, so we're working with several communities right now in really close partnership. Um, we just launched a Cherokee language course, um, which was really really exciting because we brought in a member of Cherokee Nation as one of our interns. He was working with seven thousand languages for about a year and a half. It was a really long process. It was a really beautiful course to create. Um, an alphabet course, but you know, for the syllabary and to create a beginner's Cherokee course. So he really took over as the project manager of that. Um, and it was such, such an exciting uh, program to have this intern working that we, uh, we doubled down. And so this summer we brought on uh, several more interns so that they could really learn the project management, learn the software, and begin to create courses and other language materials in their language. Um, and we plan to do much more of that. So we have a, a LAWS course, which also just launched, that is an Indigenous Endangered Language of Turkey. Um, we have a Kickapoo course that's coming out from one of our interns. We're working really closely with Comanche Nation. Um, we're working closely with the Douglas Indian Association, and we're going to. Uh, we're really excited to create some Klinka courses with that group. Um, we have a long-standing partnership with the Doyon Foundation. They're based in Fairbanks, but their region serves ten languages in Alaska, and we're working with them. We've created in partnership with them nine courses and we're we're really working towards getting that 10th language course as well so um a lot's going on but one of the really really exciting things that we're working on one of our big goals moving forward is to create um a mobile app actually and this app will really be one of the first of its kind because using only your cell phone using only like um data without any internet access, without any Wi-Fi needs, communities will be able to uh, create language learning materials. So this app will guide them through um, sort of a pretty typical course outline. It'll it's completely uh, editable, so it's completely um, open for the communities to decide on what makes sense for them to put in their language learning courses. But we sort of guide them through the process of um, creating the vocabulary, assembling lessons, assembling units to create a full course. Um, and then once they create that, the um, other side of it is that language learning app, right? Kind of like Duolingo. But um, this is really the first of its kind. This is the first app of its kind that's going to be deployed worldwide. And you're able to, yeah, with your phone, take pictures, record your audio. Um, you can write the language, but that's also fully optional. So we really want complete creativity. Um, we hope to serve so many more communities. And in particular, communities that don't always have access to internet, they don't have access to laptops or desktop computers, right? Communities that are oftentimes sort of shut out of some of this language technology um, because of those limitations. So we're really excited to, to um, mm -hmm. launch that app as well. So those are some of our current projects, just some of them. Uh, we're also leading workshops. Um, so there's a lot going on, um, but the need is, is great. That's exciting. And, and so... 
like watching technology and, and how technology can interact with language learning, I think there's so many possibilities just in terms of having an interface, having an access. Uh, people be on screens all the time. So you might as well find people where they're at. But I think there's also this a bit of a misnomer that if you can only get this technology, then you'll be safe, right? Because sometimes people put so right. much energy into it that they sort of forget to change their whole life to create language. So you got any thoughts on that, Bill? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so I've worked on language learning technology for 20 plus years. It facilitates learning. It may augment what goes on in the classroom if there's a classroom context. But you got to step back and say, well, you know, what does the community need? Um, where Where is the community in terms of their ability to um, create and use language learning materials? The technology is... Um, to some degree, it's it's essentially a delivery service, right? It's instead of having printed materials and textbooks that you gotta ship here and you know hither and yon, you've got um, you know if you've got a decent four G signal, then you can use the app. But the app itself, you know, to me, is is it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. It's not the full. Um, it's not the full issue of learning language or transmitting or reclaiming or revitalizing a language. The technology has enormous affordances. And when we roll out this, this mobile app that will work on cell phone data that will make, you know, learning, you know, UPIC or Inuktitut or Aleut, you know, these languages that are in places where you don't have good broadband which is not just an Alaska thing, that's an upper Midwest and mountain Rockies and, oh, oh, by the way, Appalachia and pretty much everywhere in rural America. And where's the res located rural America? You know, if we can get, get the, get the delivery mechanism sorted out, then we can help communities. But it's, it's really, you know, I'm, I'm old and you guys are young. You know, so I remember, I remember back when, you know, the language learning technology in the classroom was a, a chalkboard and then we went to whiteboards and then we went to smartboards and now we've got phones and iPads and everything else. It's, it's, the technology is, um, to step into the history of 7,000 languages. Sure, it's 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 centered on the, the history of the, the organization, centered on the technology and the affordances of that technology. But the technology is really the 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 mechanism whereby we work with communities to to help them develop curricula, to help them deliver curricula for whatever their requirements are. And so the technology itself is an enabling tool. But it is not, at least in my view, as the chair of the board, and, you know, I don't want to disagree with my executive director, um, who, you know, who does a great job and all that. The technology itself isn't the raison d'etre. That isn't why we're here. We're here to figure out how to work with um, First Nations to figure out what they need and to help 
and to then work with them to empower them to create the learning materials that will make sense for them, right? And that, that technology enables that. Technology is a critical component, but it isn't the mission in and of itself. I don't know if that makes any sense to, to you, Kone, or to you, Stephanie, but that's, that's where my mind is right now. Absolutely. I think, I mean, to get really, you know, big here, the limitation of of all technology, regardless of what it is, is that it it simply can't replace the real purpose of language, which is human connection, right? I mean, the real purpose of language is maybe it's survival, you know, maybe it's like, hey, there's bears that way. But you know, real human language is about connecting with one another. And I think, I hope our technology is in service of that, is in service of creating real connection, real community. And I'd like to think that if, if that's at the, the absolute mm-hmm. center and the absolute core of why we engage in language, so why we would engage in language revitalization, technology is absolutely at the periphery, but I think it can... Um, maybe in a way, flank those moments of connection. And I'll give an example. Um, we have our partners at Doyan Foundation, and, and we've created online language learning materials with them. And they put it in the schools. They, they have a partnership with a charter school in, in Fairbanks where there are children who um, have heritage languages of the, I want to say 10 out of 10 languages of the Doyan region, right? And um, one of the things that they also do in this school, which just sounds so amazing, is that they have elders come in. Elders come in from all the different languages and come and visit with the children and speak to them about whatever the elders want to speak to them about, right? And that is the moment. That is the center. That is the core. That is language and action, is connection. But what I think we do as 7,000 Languages and what Dwight Foundation does with our courses is they, they say, okay, these elders are absolutely at the center of what we want this experience, this language experience to be for our students. But the elders come in once a week for only an hour. They're not the teachers in the school. So how do we fortify that? We'll have the children preload, right? We'll have them get comfortable in the language because language learning is really scary. It's really hard. And indigenous language learning and endangered language learning is also often, you know, incredibly emotional. And so how can we get people to feel comfortable in the language, to feel ready to engage in the language, to be able to actively listen in the language when those moments arise? Technology can help support that. And how do we ensure that after that experience of being able to connect and, and be in that space with the elder, that we're able to uh, reiterate that knowledge that was passed on, reiterate that language. Technology can kind of come at the back end as well. I'd like to think that that's how um, our specific programs um, are really strengthening that one effort in that community. And it looks different for every community. And it looks different for for um for every group, depending on what their goals are. But that's sort of the big difference. That's the huge limitation of technology. It will never, ever, ever replace those moments of real community and connection and engagement and relationship. But I do think that it can um, 
strengthen it and fortify it and uplift it. And, right. I, and I hope that we do that. Awesome. So, yeah, so there's this incredible technology out there that can help organize and, and help sort of uh, get folks on, you know, just bring language learning right to your fingertips, basically, and make sure that you have one pathway sort of forged for you. And, and there could be many different pathways to get there. But for a lot of languages, if they're highly endangered, you need to have sort of like a singular pathway until you get plurality and you get a diversity of speakers, and then you could increase that, you know. And so... If I'm out there in the world and I'm struggling and I'm trying to get my language going and I say, oh, this would be great. Uh, where do I start? What do I do? How do I get in touch with folks? Yeah. Well, always, you know, just get started, right? <laughs> but come visit us. Definitely check us out. Our website is pretty easy. It's www.7000.org. Reach out to us. We, like I said, we're leading some workshops. So we have a lot of workshops where we are um, really engaging with the, um, with the software. We're showing people how to use it. We're showing people how to create. Maybe you only know enough language for two lessons. That's great. Come on over create language learning lessons with whatever you know. If you know 10 words, let's make a lesson. Let's do it. Um, so we're, we're doing workshops, but we're working really closely with communities as well. Um, yeah, we're, we don't say no, and we never charge communities. Right. There's no cost to the community. You know, we, we work with communities to figure out where they are in their we work with all, you know, first stations to figure out where they are in their language journey. Is it, you know, reviving from, from scratch? Is it revitalization? Is it reclamation? Is it the development of, you know, a full K-12 curriculum, you know, to support the language? We can handle all of that because we have that expertise. But it's it's never at the cost of the community and very importantly, the data that come from the community belong to the community. And they can be, you know, fed into the, the, the language learning product. I hesitate to use the word product, but the, you know, learning objects in the curriculum. Um, but they also belong to the community if, you, if the community needs to work on dictionaries or grammars or whatever else it needs to do. Those belong to the community. And then if, if you know, we, we know full well there are nation there are First Nations that don't want for whom for which I say the First Nations for which the language is a private and and maybe sacred object. We can work with that too. You know, that will not be exposed to the broader world. We will support that First Nation. If the First Nation is comfortable sharing its language. If there's, you know, money to, be, money to be made from selling, <laughs> frankly, those the language learning, all of all of those proceeds, all those proceeds go back to the First Nation, and there's there's we we accommodate everything in between, but we work from the principle, and we have you know I I was the first board chair, I uh, came on board um, seven years ago, and it was. The, the firm commitment of the organization from the very beginning that not only do we respect data sovereignty, we support data sovereignty actively, 
And we work with communities, number one. Number two, we work with communities where they are in terms of their language journey. And we support whatever those goals are because we know those vary from nation to nation tremendously. You know, there's there's a, a 574 federally recognized in the United States, right, um, Native American nations. And many more that are not yet federally recognized that may have state recognition, et cetera, right? So, so we work with the communities to say, okay, well, where are you guys? Our challenge and my role as the board chair is to raise the money to support our very long queue of nations that want help, right? And Stephanie can talk to the length of that queue, but it's a very long queue. Um, and be- because there's a there, there's more energy in Indian country around language reclamation than people understand in the broader society or that understand in Washington, D.C., or Sacramento, or Juneau, I'm sorry, Clinique, you know, right? That they're, they're, the people are doing it. People are saying, hey, this language matters. We matter. This language matters, and we're going to do it, and we're not going to wait for permission or some federal grant or what have you. But sooner or later, that runs into, well, you know, how many people are there in our nation? I was just talking this earlier, just before this podcast with a very dear colleague in Minnesota, um, where she's like the head of government relations, but she also runs the emergent school, but she's also on the tribal council, but she's also, you know, one of their, one of their people involved in sorting out the rice harvest every year, the wild rice. It's like everybody's got four or five jobs. And so there are real bandwidth limitations. And so how do we as an organization help solve, you know, one of those resource questions, like, you know, where's the money going to come from? That's on, on our board and on Stephanie and the staff to find the support to meet that demand, which is really out there to, revive, revitalize, reclaim. I'm not sure which term I like. I like reclamation, but I know I know it's not appropriate in every circumstance. To to really build communities around these languages. Because even if even you know, even if it's a very small community and you know, so even if the fact that kids grow up bilingual, we have now twenty years of data from Indian country in the United States. If kids learn their own, if, they, if, if the children learn the language of their community and of their nation, they lead better lives. They lead better lives. They have better educational outcomes. They have better job outcome, job search. They have better, you know, they, they're, they don't get as divorced as often. They're, they're, their kids do better. There's something deeply human about having the language of your culture in your house, in your own person that leads to a better life. And that's, you know, fundamental. It's a promise that the federal government has made. It's not kept, right? Native American Language Act of 1973, honored in the breach, like every other treaty made with Indian country. Hello. But, you know, we're in a place at 7,000, like, you know, we're going to do what we can to support communities. I get, I get, I get fired up, and I apologize, but I get fired up. Stay fired up. 
we're going to take another break, folks. Uh, as we head to break, I just want to share something from one of our elders. Uh, he would be 100 years old if he were alive today, and he's not. Uh, we lost him about seven years ago. His name was Kashkawu Cyril George, and we recorded him telling some stories. And in one of these stories, he talks about this place called Katukaksakehin, which is uh, often translated as peaceful river, but the literal translation is the river that untangles a person's mind. And I wanted to share this name with you folks because maybe you're out there doing this work and maybe it's difficult. And maybe you're looking at things and it's difficult. And, and we're going to engage in a few conversations when we get back uh, and a few topics anyways. And one of the things that's really challenging with colonialism is this how identity functions. So when you take away a language from people, you kill those people. That's just something that happens. And so there's a misunderstanding a lot of times. I was testifying one time, and these two Alaska state legislators said, well, my ancestors spoke Russian, and when they moved here, they stopped, because that's what you do. And my ancestors spoke Norwegian, and when they moved here, they, they learned English, because that's what you do here. And this idea that English is, is part of a naturalization of becoming someone who's from this place. And, and I think there's something deeply wrong with, with that idea, and there's something deeply inhumane behind it. And so one of the things that, uh, that happens to indigenous peoples is you get denied your own identity, and then your own identity gets destroyed, and then you're told you have to become something else, which you're also never allowed to fully become. And, the, and one of the things I try to get folks to understand is you can go to Russia and you can learn Russian. And you can learn Russian from home. And you can go to Norway and you can learn Norwegian from home. But if these languages are destroyed, like it's very difficult to bring them back because they're being killed off in the places where they were born. So he tells this story. Jill tells this story about this boy who insulted the salmon and they took him. And then he became a salmon and he came home after a year to this place where his family works on fish, which is called Katukaksakehin. And he's, he's from Angoon. It's a beautiful community. Kudzidakwan, shout out to you. Uh, and this is, how, this is how he ends the story. He says, So when you see us here, the people from Angoon, and he's talking about going somewhere for a funeral. When you look upon our faces, may it be like as if you've been brought to the river that entangles a person's mind. We'll be right back. Once I thought about a million birds all around the world sharing their songs and thinking about the way they've lived and they're gonna live and this is the way ye awa ye kukach to see wuchin ye gach to dlaq Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future especially when it comes to your finances so if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. 
Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon. Serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Uh, there's another phrase that elders shared with us. This one was from Kehinok John Martin. Uh, if you went to a glacially fed river with a clear container, like a, a glass, a clear glass, and you just scoop some water out, you'd see all this silt and all these different parts moving around. And if you just let that water be still for long enough, it would settle clear. And so we call that kaudaku. And then there's a phrase which is let your spirit be like the water that has settled. Because there's there's a lot that we do with calmness, with still water. Uh, we're people who live on the ocean, so still water means easy traveling. And it also is a symbol for peace. So wherever you're at, whatever you're doing, I hope that you're finding peace and you're feeling feeling good about the work that you're doing. There's some terms that we use uh, in this field, and uh, I think it's good to just talk about them every now and then. For me, there's these three terms, language revitalization, language stabilization, and language revival that are related terms and really have to do with where you're at with things. So for me, if you've got a lot of speakers and there's a high percentage of people that speak and the language is spoken in a wide number of places, then you're probably looking at stabilizations, which means we're trying not to slip into this place where our language is endangered. If your language is endangered, which means there's few people who speak it, there's not very many places that speak it, it's not used between generations, then you're looking at language revitalization, which is saying, let's get ourselves up to stabilization. 
And if you don't have any speakers, then you're usually looking at language revival, which means the language is currently asleep and we're looking at bringing it back and we have to come up with ways to just build at least a few speakers and then more and then more and then more. So your strategies shift depending on kind of where you're at, similar to, uh, and I like to look at these things on sort of a spectrum, sort of like uh, fluency. When I first started teaching Klinget, people would usually, when they told them that that's what I did, they'd say, are you fluent? As if there was like a, a, a card that I would get, like here's my BIA card and here's my Klinket Haida card and here's my fluent card, where I like, right? And so I like to see things on like maybe a scale of one to 10 if you're looking at fluency. And so the other term that we're using quite a bit is language reclamation, which I think is more of a philosophical term in some in some ways like because you're you're taking back what was denied and what someone tried to take from you for whatever reason and so sometimes you're trying to figure out what you need to do to create structural shifts in education in organizations and in individuals daily lives and so sometimes that reclamation is saying like this is ours we are claiming it again and sometimes that reclamation is saying this is a place physically or socially where our language used to be used and it's been denied that and so we're taking that domain back and so this leads us into uh, the last part of our conversation which is like what do nations want and, and how do we maintain trust and how do we make sure that the things that are harvested in indigenous communities go back and or stay and and, and don't leave so uh, before Stephanie provides really concrete, detailed, and principled answers from 7,000, um, I just want to state as an organizational principle from the establishment um, seven years ago, we are fully committed to data sovereignty. And I think I said that in the previous segment. Um, as a personal position, as a, as a you know, PhD linguist, and if you follow like um, First Nations and and Indian Country language uh, revitalization Twitter, the PhD is kind of a freighted, a loaded term right now. Like, like you know, Ray Taken Alive has been on that just just in the last couple of days, and good for him. But you know, I think that the organizational position and my personal position is that um, reclamation means for for a first nation where what what makes sense what what does that nation need what do they want what what can they do um whether it's language or place you know toponyms and place names and you and and Klinet, you've been great on this you know in terms of your own twitter feed about you know place names like there are all these places named after people who came you know a hundred years ago who get to somehow claim a piece of um, Alaska that other people have been living there for 20,000 years, right? So, but as an organization, to me at least, that, that we, we want to support communities, First Nations, with whatever it is that they need, um, wherever they are in their journey to reclaiming their language. And knowing that that journey has different starting points and different endpoints, right? And so 
so where how do we support that how do we serve as allies how do we build an organization that is representative of the communities whom we serve and to me that's you know that's that's a sacred duty as as a you know there's a fiduciary duty as a board chair in the white man's context of 501c3 but how do we build and how do we build a community of um of practitioners in language learning and language learning technology and in in training um language teachers to to serve a broader purpose and that is a very very important question and goal and and for the details of that like okay because again bill likes to talk a lot but for the details of that i'll turn to stephanie and and i'll be quiet now yeah you can see look at this leadership i have thanks thanks for that and also that's it that's damning with faint praise but that's okay (laughs) (laughs) and thank you for what you said earlier about fluency and and so um, two two sort of things came to mind when you were saying that and and maybe it comes to this this sort of phrase that's been going around a lot and i think there's a lot of different interpretations but the idea of like Creating space, creating space for language and language learning. And I mean literal space and domains, but I also mean creating room and, and emotional space and, and mental space and, and institutional space. And and I love what you said about fluency. Because what if what if fluency is not the goal of a community? Is that community still engaging in language revitalization? Who's to say what the goal has to be? And I say that acknowledging my background is also very colonialized, right? I have a master's degree in um, linguistics. It's from the University of Hawaii, but every professor I learned from was white. Every classmate I had was white. I'm white facing, I'm white appearing. And even the technology we use is being developed by white people right i mean like another limitation of this technology is the fact that so often our biggest challenges are verb-based languages polysynthetic languages because when this language learning technology is being built it's being built for languages like english spanish right i have to believe that if the creators of these software developers spoke variety of languages if they were indigenous that the technology would look different um and so yes i think you know i'll sort of say that i really see my my role as as creating that space so i can i i think um yeah i really appreciate what you said and so how do we gain quote-unquote trust and i think really that's that's by that acknowledgement and understanding that acknowledging is not enough but how do we act on the acknowledgement? And really understanding that 7,000 languages were the guests, were the visitors, were not the experts. Um, certainly, I've learned about curriculum development here and linguistics there. And please, like, exploit that knowledge. Let it serve you and your language goals. But I'm not the expert at all. Um, and so I, I think that's how we really work to maintain the relationships that lead to the kind of um, outcomes that communities want. So 
is when it comes to um, data sovereignty, right? And we have a policy in place and it's on our website, right? And our policy is that the community owns, owns the language in every form. And if we want to get really nerdy about data, right? They own raw data, the data that is collected, the audio files, the .IMGs, like everything, everything, all of that raw data and formatted data, right? Because we take that raw data and we put it into Excel file sheets. We put it into software programs. We spit out other data that informs the software and tells it what to do. All of that data belongs to the community. The course itself is copyrighted to the community that creates the course. So that belongs to the community as well. That being said, we have to keep listening and we have to keep learning. So my position when it comes to data sovereignty is I welcome our communities when we work with them. I don't just say, all right, here's the data sovereignty or here's our language ownership agreement sign here on the dotted line. I say, do you have something to change about this? Do you have anything to add to this? How does this read to you? Can we ever adopt or change or mold our current practices because I think if we just say like oh look at us our our language practices are so great and we stop there we're gonna um we're gonna lose sight of our mission and we're gonna lose sight of what those goals were so we have to keep listening and we have to keep working with communities not just to like sign here on the dotted line but to say like what does this mean to you what are your what are your language documents that you've created um, how can we meet those standards? Um, so I think that's how we try to build trust is not saying come to us and come look at our standards, but it's saying, how can we meet your standards, your goals, your practices, your traditions, your knowledge? I just want to add that, you know, it's like Ray taken alive um, from Standing Rock just today said the problem with how education is structured is our speakers cannot teach or get full-time jobs unless they have a senseless piece of paper. There's still, and, and what I take from Ray's, um, and I really respect what he's done on data sovereignty, but he's now moved into the question of like, what does the educational system look like, right? Who's allowed to teach? And there's, there's, a, there's a, a superstructure that's imposed where I think we are disenfranchising people. Right. So we, as 7,000, I don't know that we can change what, you know, North or South Dakota does or Alaska does about who gets to teach in the classroom on the res. We can, we can talk, we can talk about um, data sovereignty and we can support data sovereignty in, in every way that we can, right? Fully committed to it. I, I came into this more than 20 years ago. As part of an NSF, National Science Foundation, National, National Endowment for the Humanities Project workshop on, it wasn't called data sovereignty then, but it was uh, um, data rights and, and how all of these linguistic archives at the University of Pennsylvania, at UAF, at U University of Texas, Austin, at, you know, how they treated the linguistic data that you know, scientists, quote unquote, had gathered over generations going back to, you know, Franz Boas and Frederica de Laguna visiting Alaska a hundred and some years ago, where in point of fact, as a fundamental 
principle of human rights um, and informed consent and all the other, you know, legal architecture, white man legal architecture of of research, but so be it, that those data belong to the people who provided it. If I ask Kone about how to say, you know, mug in Tlingit as versus mug in English or Irish, you know, that datum belongs to Kune and to his people. 7,000 is fully committed to that. We know that this will continue to evolve, but we are fully committed to that. Fully committed. And I can say that as president and speaking on behalf of the board, unless, you know, you know I'm fully, fully committed to that. And I'm sure the board completely agrees. So Kune is signaling me, you can't see this on the podcast, but he's got, oh, for God, Bill, will you please let me break in? <laughs> Good of cheese. Uh, we're going to wrap things up here. And, and I, I guess I would say from my perspective is I think it's time probably for a federal act that I'm, I'm not good at acronyms, but it would be like the Native American Intellectual Property Rights Protection Act, which would be NAPERPA. But I guess we've got to figure out something. Somebody can come up with a snazzy title. But I, I think for now, if if you are coming into a community and you're working with their language, I think a number of things is you should be willing to put your name on a piece of paper that says, I will not claim anything that I harvest as my own. I will not tell anyone who's from that community and who's connected to that language in which ways they can and should use this. I will not deny access to any of this. I will make sure that the originals are housed within their community. And that includes your original files that you're creating, which I think is a big step for a lot of people just to say, okay, well, here it, here's all of it. But to, to sort of wrap up uh, everything that we've talked about, uh, I appreciate you both and the work that you're doing, the commitments that you show repeatedly. Uh, and there's folks out there who might be saying, well, how, how can I help? What can I do? So how can folks contribute to 7,000 languages? Um, well, I want to say one other thing. Not just about, like, data belonging to the communities, but the process of developing the course also, we're working towards giving that to the community. Like I believe the community should be able to create their own courses in perpetuity and train others. Um, data never needs to be handed to us, actually. Um, okay, so that being said, we would love, we would love people who want to get involved and want to get more engaged with us to please, please, please um, come over to our website, 7000.org. We just developed this really exciting membership program where um, we know that there's so many people who see language endangerment as a serious issue and they want to support communities that are reclaiming and revitalizing their languages. And so we have this membership program that we built up where you can learn all the languages on our website. Of course, those are available for free. You can learn more about our partners we have exclusive events. We hold our own web events. Um, and also you can get some behind scenes looks at what we do and some other kind of cool exclusive stuff. So we would invite anybody to come, be part of what we're doing, become a member. Um, so head on over to www.7000.org, support us. Um, and yeah, you can also say contact us. We're just so happy to connect. And, and because I know Kone has a broad um, audience in Indian country, if you want help with your revitalizing, reviving, revitalizing, reclaiming your language, right, 
let us know too. You know, we have a long, it, it, the queue is longer than, we've got more languages to help than we can ever do in a particular year. You know, and, and that is, um, that's a challenge for us. It could be disheartening, but it's also a positive sense, positive in the sense that um, there are communities out there that really want to do something for language. And the more that we know about that, the better. And it helps us go out and find the government grants and the, the foundation grants where we can help. We can help First Nations do whatever they need to do with their languages and make sure that they they have control over the destiny of their languages, which is really where we are. So, again, I get I get fired up every time I talk, every time I open my mouth. So, stay fired up, everybody. Thanks for joining us and uh, check out 7,000 Languages and figure out what you need to do in terms of technology and your language. Uh, wishing you all the best and we'll catch you folks later. Thanks for hanging out with us. This is how we feel. 7,000 languages staying strong all around the world. This has been the Tongue Unbroken, a project of the Next Up Initiative through iHeart. Check out On Call with KB, another Next Up fellow launching an amazing podcast about the science behind the scenes of television shows. We are produced by Daniel Goodman and Chataya Khane. We'll catch you next week. Keep doing the good stuff. Decolonize everything. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional. You can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.